And now, for your feature presentation. One, or two, or three, or four, but five, Force Five. Welcome back to the Force Five Podcast. I am your master of ceremonies, Jason Kleberg, and if this is your first time, Force 5 is the show that forces a guest to come up with a movie-themed top five list, and then we talk about our picks on air. This week, I had two guests lined up, and they canceled on me last minute, so I went to Reddit to see if anyone wanted to step up, and I got an insane response from the podcast community, so thank you to everybody. Uh, I'm going to try and find time for all of you that asked, but the person who's going to be joining me tonight from the bevy of responses is Derek McDuff a freelance entertainment writer and co-host of the Underrated Podcast, and the topic he chose is Top 5 Brief Encounter Films. But before we get to Derek, let's talk about some of the things I've seen since the last time you heard my sultry voice. First things first, got a disc in from Severin this week. This one is from 1987, and it's called Strike Commando. Major, this Ransom, is he really that good? There's no one who can touch him in your whole damned army. After being left for dead by his own military, Michael Ransom makes it back to his squad only to be thrown back into the fire on a recon mission. Unfortunately, he's captured and has to survive a POW camp as well as a pack of traitorous Americans. Strike Commando feels like four 80s movie segments wrapped into one long film that has one scene in particular that is so bad that it's amazing. Although it was filmed in the Philippines, like many low-budget 80s war and adventure movies, the story takes place in Vietnam. The first segment sees Michael Ransom and his gang of red-shirt commandos leading a strike on a Vietnamese armory. It's reminiscent of the opening scenes of Navy SEALs or Sniper, and ends with Ransom double-crossed for no good reason by a team of traitors on his own team. Luckily for him, he survives the attack and finds himself in a Vietnamese village where they heal him up so he can find his way back to civilization. Along the way, he befriends a tween Vietnamese boy, which pays off in a hilarious way, but more on that later. The second segment sees him trying to get back to his squad while sheltering the Vietnamese townspeople he's trying to liberate. It's clunky and slow, and I assumed that this was going to be the rest of the film. Ransom, trying to outsmart the Viet Cong while trying to get back to a squad that would rather have him dead for no reason, but he immediately gets back to them, and then the film starts really ramping up. After a short debrief, Ransom is immediately sent back out for recon in the third segment, which we'll call the Rambo First Blood Part 2 ripoff. He finds the Vietnamese people he befriended slaughtered, although in true low-budget fashion, you can actually see all of the actors portraying the dead bodies breathing. The boy has a few last words, and it leads to one of the best comedic movie moments of all time as he tries to explain Disneyland to this kid, clearly having never been there himself. Jagoda was his name. Imagine. Tell me. Tell me about Disneyland. (laughs) They got tons of popcorn there. All you gotta do is go climb a tree to go eat it. (laughs) And there's cotton candy, mountains of it. And chocolate milk and mountains. And there's a genie, a magic genie. (laughs) 
that he can't wait to grant your wishes. In the last segment, Ransom breaks out of a POW camp and goes after those responsible, killing the Vietnamese, Russians, and Americans that get in his way. The film is mostly bloodless, which is a bit disappointing. The people who get blown away by the non-stop barrage of bullets mostly just spin and fall while smoke packs pop from the ground. The best kill happens when Ransom, who seems to have a great affinity for just leaving big bundles of grenades as deadly gifts, stuffs a live grenade into someone's mouth, blowing them to smithereens. Speaking of bundles of grenades, another Strike Commando highlight happens when Ransom swims out to an enemy scouting boat, drops a fresh bundle in, and swims away as the boat explodes. The boat is clearly a miniature, a tactic used by many filmmakers in the 80s to save money, but Bruno Mattei decided to put tiny toy soldiers on board that look absolutely hilarious when they pop into the air as the boat disintegrates. Strike Commando is a pretty standard Rambo-style 80s ripoff, but it does offer a bit of charm because of the character of Michael Ransom. His determination, overacting, and unlimited supply of bullets are kind of fun to watch as he trudges through the jungle, and his Disneyland explanation is on par with those so-bad-they're-good film moments you see in Troll 2, Tough Guys Don't Dance, and The Room. In terms of presentation, the Severin disc looks really nice and has some extras. If you're a fan of war movies and are interested in the low-budget hilarity within, Strike Commando is probably a worthy addition to your collection. Now, of course, everyone this week is talking about Marvel's Black Widow, so let's talk about Black Widow from 1987. Two guys die within four days of each other. What does that say to you? People die in their sleep. You don't die in your sleep of something called... Ondine's Curse. It's rare. It's real. It happens. We don't have any evidence. I just spent the whole morning showing you the damn evidence. If that's what the Justice Department calls evidence these days, then that is the scariest part of this whole conversation. The thing is, I know I'm right. Catherine, he went in his sleep so peacefully. Let's round up some photos. Not the men, the wives. I'm going to be very brief with this one because I only watched this movie to make that joke and I was bored out of my mind for an hour and a half, so... Totally worth it. Black Widow is a tepid modern noir disguised as a steamy erotic thriller, but it never goes far enough with its subject matter to raise my eyebrows. Teresa Russell plays Catherine, a gold digger who marries men, and once they include her in their will, kills them quietly with poison to make it look like natural causes. After two murders, no one seems to notice this is happening until Alexandra, who's like a paper pusher at the Justice Department, played by Deborah Winger, notices that everyone Catherine touches turns up dead. So she starts an investigation and in true late 80s thriller fashion, gets in over her head. If you can actually make it through the film, you'll sit there wondering, if Catherine is so good at what she does, why does she have to keep marrying men to do it? Why not just bag one that's so rich that you'll only need to do it once? 1987's Black Widow feels like Brian De Palma light. While well shot, the story is boring and predictable. I actually wish this film was worse because then I may have had a little fun with it. Alright, that out of the way, let's talk about 2021's Black Widow. You don't know everything about me. I've lived a lot of lives. Before I was an Avenger. Before I got this family. I made mistakes choosing between what the world wants you to be 
knew you were. This is the origin story of how Black Widow got her vest and blonde hair for Infinity War. It involves her sister Yelena, her parents, the Taskmaster, and your good old Marvel trope of the old uninteresting white bad guy in a heavily fortified office pulling all the strings. As the movie got underway, I had a bad feeling about it. I cannot stand this current trend of taking a really great song from yesteryear and slowing it down and modernizing it, so when a slow piano-driven cover of Smells Like Teen Spirit started playing over the credits, my eyes nearly rolled all the way into the back of my head. Fortunately, that was one of the worst parts of the film, and although I hated the cover, it kind of made sense later on. You've seen plenty of Scarlett Johansson as Black Widow by this point, so let's talk about the new additions to the MCU. Florence Pugh plays Yelena, Natasha's sister. I'm guessing this is going to be a lot of casual movie fans' first impression of Miss Pugh, and what an intro it was. I've been a big fan of hers since Midsommar, and I thought she was absolutely fantastic here. She gets a chance to show both her dramatic and comedy chops, and this woman just never misses. David Harbour also joins the MCU as Red Guardian, and what a treat he was as the Russian super soldier. As usual, he was really funny, and he's just, I'm such a big fan of his. I recently saw him on Hot Ones, and he's just such an endearing person, and I just cannot get enough of David Harbour. Rachel Weisz rounds out the family as the matriarch. It was good to see her, and although she didn't do a whole lot on screen, she's never been bad in a role. So all three of these welcome additions. The story is pretty typical Marvel fare, and it will make you wish that you rewatched Captain America Civil War. It's one of those tales that doesn't really hold up to scrutiny if you try to pick it apart, like asking yourself, how has this guy not only built a floating castle, but managed to fly it over England without anyone knowing about it for years? Or how has Black Widow survived this movie without actual superpowers? But remember, it's a Marvel movie, so it's not really grounded in our reality. This film not only fills the gap of what Black Widow is doing between Civil War and Infinity War, it's also presenting an allegory for Harvey Weinstein and other child-grooming sick fucks. Smells like teen spirit, indeed. They even toss a few swear words in there, and a conversation about involuntary hysterectomies was as uncomfortable as it was intended. As a number two, the Taskmaster is a pretty interesting character, but the final fight seemed a bit abrupt and didn't seem to ratchet the tension up constantly like it could have. Then again, at that point, maybe they just didn't want to gas the audience because the final set piece lasts like 30-45 minutes. The rest of the action here was surprisingly fantastic with some absolutely brutal moments. There's a fight scene between Natasha and her sister when they first meet up again that doesn't make any sense but looks cool as hell. There's also a fantastic car chase scene and the end sequence is thrilling despite the bad CGI that always seems to rear its ugly head during Marvel films. I'm still baffled with how much money Disney has they still cannot manage to fix some of this awful CGI. It happened in Black Panther and it's happened in many shots here. There's a shot here where Florence Pugh jams a staff in something and is blown backwards by an explosion and it looked like honey we shrunk ourselves level of green screen work. Overall, I have to say I really, really enjoyed Black Widow. I thought it was a fitting final look at Natasha Romanoff's character that set up an interesting arc for the future. Florence Pugh was so goddamn good, and David Harbour was great as usual. The chemistry between everyone seemed just so genuine. If you're a fan of action movies and you're a fan of spy movies, you're really going to like those elements here. 
Black Widow seems like it has something for everyone, so unless you're one of those contrarians who despises Marvel films, you're probably going to enjoy this. Upon one watch, I'd probably slot it in the top third of all Marvel releases, which says a lot because I do enjoy these films. I'll save my spoiler thoughts until after the episode, so stay tuned at the end of the episode and I'll give you just one quick spoiler thought on Black Widow if you want to hear it. I'm going to pause here just for a moment to introduce today's sponsor, Seduce and Destroy. Sometimes people ask me, hey Kleberg, how did a guy like you with a face for podcasting get a wife like that? Well, the answer is a little bit of luck and a lot of personality. Unfortunately, some people aren't lucky and have no personality. If that sounds like you, then today's sponsor might be what you're looking for. Now, I could talk to you until I'm blue in the face about the benefits of the seduce and destroy system, but why not hear it from the creator himself, TJ Mackey? In this big game that we play, life, it's not what you hope for, it's not what you deserve, it's what you take. I'm Frank TJ Mackey a master of the muffin, and author of the Seduce and Destroy system now available to you on audio and video cassette. Seduce and Destroy will teach you the techniques to have any hard body blonde just dripping to wet your dock. Bottom line, language. The magical key to unlocking the female analytical mindset. Tap directly into her hopes, her wants, her fears, her desires, and her sweet little panties. Learn how to make that lady friend your sex-starved servant. I don't care how you look. I don't care what car you drive. I don't care what your last bank statement says. Seduce and Destroy produces an instant, money-back, guaranteed, trance-like state that will get you this naughty sauce you want fast. Hey, how many more times do you need to hear the all-too-famous line of, I just don't feel that way about you? Order now and get the entire Frank T.J. Mackey Seduce and Destroy system with Frank's personal magical key guarantee for the low price of $29.95 plus shipping and handling. Call 1-877-TAME-HER. That's 877-826-3437. Or check out our website at www.seduceanddestroy.com. Welcome back to the Force 5 Podcast. Tonight, I'm joined by Derek McDuff. You may have seen his written work on sites like Watch Mojo, and he's the co-host of Underrated, a film podcast that shines light on those movies that deserve a second look. How's it going tonight, Derek? Hey, it's going really well. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for coming in in the clutch. We had uh, somebody drop out quickly, and uh, so Derek has stepped in with a really interesting list topic that we'll get to here in a little bit. But before that, why don't you tell us a little bit about you? Where are you from? What do you do? Yeah, I'm uh, born and raised in Southern California here. Um, like you mentioned, I do some writing, you know, um, some freelance stuff, uh, usually about film, but just kind of about any pop culture stuff. But uh, my podcast, Underrated, is specifically about underrated movies or ones that are kind of underappreciated or cult stuff, stuff that's really just slipped under the radar for whatever reason. Um, so, you know, I, cause I just love movies and there's some movies that I'm just like, this really deserves more attention. You know, our first episode was on speed racer, which is a movie that got killed critically and did yeah. terrible at the box office, but it's just very near and dear to me. Um, so just movies like that. Uh, I love to code and talk about on my show underrated. 
you mentioned you're a big movie fan. Obviously, you got your own show. You're on this show. You you write for different entertainment sites. What are some of your favorite movies of all time that might not make a list like ours today? So probably some of my favorite movies, um, Jurassic Park obviously is up there. That's just a great film because it's got everything you want from a movie. It's got action and you care about the characters and it was really groundbreaking in terms of like effects. Um, it still has those quiet moments where it's just somebody people talking about like, oh, like this is you are getting the thing about like capitalism is bad, maybe. And just like <laughs> corporate greed and just like how that's all driving it. But then it's also like a T-Rex is, is an app and you got a Jeff Goldblum will say is like, ha, 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 you know, that's one of my favorites. Uh, which casting is Sundance Kid is another one of my favorites. Uh, Princess Mononoke for animated movies. Um yeah, those are uh, super bad if you want to, you know, get uh, into something that's quite more of a quote-unquote teen, teen comedy. And maybe it was because that movie came out when I was graduating from high school that summer, but that movie's always had a special place in my heart, too. Sure. I feel like everybody's got that high school comedy that came out around the time they graduated. For me, it was Amer- American Pie, because I'm a lot older oh, okay. than you. And so that's like my my super bad, I guess. Okay, yeah, I feel like they make one of those like every 10 years or so. Like, you know, the most recent one was Booksmart. Then you had like Fast Times and you had, um, you know, American Graffiti going back even further for the boomers and stuff. Well, tonight we're going to be talking Brief Encounters. And this was a really interesting topic and a really great idea. What was your inspiration for the list tonight? Well, I always just have kind of really loved this like very specific kind of movie. Um, we did kind of talk beforehand and we're saying, we, um, you know, it's not going to be just from romantic films, but I do really like romantic films like this because I'm a very hopeless romantic person, but I'm also like, sometimes like the world sucks and you don't have that happy notebook ending. You know, you don't have the princess bride kind of like the uh, happily ever after. Sometimes the world just sucks and gets in the way. And I love to see those two kind of conflicting things, but you know, that kind of work together in a film. Um, and it's always been whenever I just kind of watch movies like this, whenever I got a chance, um, there was a screen draft episode with Joanna Robinson, who I'm a really big fan of that covered some similar ground that kind of was, um, where I got the name from, uh, cause I didn't, I always loved this kind of movie, but I never knew what to call it. But, you know, brief encounters is where I got that name from her screen draft episode. That's interesting. I'll have to check out that episode because if you look online, like, you know, for some of these shows, you do some research, you look for through your movie collection, and then you look online and if you look up like brief encounter films, there's not a whole lot to go off of. And so a lot of this was me looking through my collection, me looking through my letterbox and, and figuring out like what really would fall into this category. Um, and it was it was very interesting in that regard. Like all of this is just played by mind, like what came to my mind first. And there were some movies that I went back and like rewatched scenes from and realized like this doesn't count. This is not a brief <laughs> encounter movie. Well, uh, Derek, you ready to get into the list? Yes, yes, definitely. You know what's going to happen? You know what's happening here right now? You know what's going to happen? No, 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 no. What? You just made the list! Top five. Top five. Top five. Top five brief encounter movies. Like we were talking about, you can really take this topic in so many different ways. Uh, When I was thinking about my list... It was more about, in this movie, two people come together for one reason or another and then leave different than they were before. And it had to have been like a very short amount of time to make that connection happen, whether good or bad. 
Like that was my kind of uh, impetus for the list. Would you kind of agree that you went in with the same thought or was yours kind of a different process? Yeah, no, I had a very similar thought. And that's kind of something I love about these movies is, uh, you know, in real life, you'll meet somebody and this person, you might not know them for the longest time, but they will profoundly impact you, whether it is romantic or otherwise, this person changes your life. And when a film manages to capture that feeling, it's just kind of a magical thing. Now, we, we kind of mentioned romantic movies and I'm looking at my list right now, and it's it's funny because when we first talked about the list, I, I thought of a lot of romantic movies that fell into this, and I kind of challenged myself to come up with a list that didn't have much of the romantic part of it. And I'm I'm guessing that you're gonna kind of uh, fill in some of those yeah, blanks for I'll, the listeners. I'll pick up the slack on that end. <laughs> and I have I have one that I think would be considered a romance movie, and the rest are a little bit different. So. I hope you're ready for this. It's going to be interesting because I've picked from all kinds of different movies on the spectrum. And I guess I'll start off with my number five being my most recent film on my list. And really the only one. Let me see. Um, I've got all kinds of different decades on here. But this one's from 2004. And it's from Michael Mann. It's called Collateral. Hey, come on. I'll take it. I got five stops to make. What's your name? Max. Max. I'm Vincent. I'll meet you in the alley behind the building. Oh, no! What the hell? You killed him. Red light, Max. Hold on, hold on. Man, you were gonna drive me around tonight and never be the wiser, but we're in the plan B. Now, we gotta make the best of it. Improvise, adapt to the environment. Whatever, man, we gotta roll with it. You just met him once and you kill him like that? But I should only kill people after I get to know them. I'm not up for this. <laughs> what are you gonna do about it? Oh, that's a good pick. This is about two guys that meet at one night, and it all takes place over the course of one night. It's Jamie Foxx. He plays a taxi driver named Max. He's a very astute guy who can uh, he can read people. He's really good at his job so much so that I think it's like an FBI uh, agent gives him her card at the beginning of it because he's just so good at what he does. And he's got dreams of owning his own high-end limo business, but he uh, he doesn't have the drive. Like he calls it a temporary gig, but he's been doing it for 12 years. And he picks up this passenger named Vincent, played by Tom Cruise, who's going against type, and he's a hitman who needs to make a couple of stops and then catch a flight. He sports this all-gray hairdo Cruise does. Uh, it's awesome. I, I love him as an actor, and here he showed that he can do something wildly different from his normal, like, all-American action star persona. Over the course of the night, they kind of learn from each other, and Jamie Foxx learns to try to take control over his life again as they go through this essentially one cab ride with a couple of stops. Now, it's not a perfect movie. There are some highly implausible situations that happen in the back half of the film, and it felt to me a little bit like the screenwriter lost control because the ending just, it's not too believable or satisfying. But overall, I do love Collateral. It's a great portrayal of Los Angeles while it's sleeping. And it reminds me, a lot of Michael Mann's films take place in Los Angeles, of course, but it reminds me of a setting like Heat, or even more so like Thief, 
that, that's a good one for your podcast, uh, Michael Mann's Thief, if you haven't done that one yet. You know, at the end of the day, this one brief encounter has propelled Max towards a different life. And when I thought about it, it totally fit in with the brief encounters. It won Best Supporting Actor, or uh, was nominated, I'm sorry, nominated for Best Supporting Actor for Jamie Foxx and uh, nominated for Best Editing. So, yeah, that's my number five, Collateral, from 2004. You know, that is a re- I wouldn't even have considered that. Like, I didn't, but as soon as you said it, I'm like, that makes so much sense. Uh, that's a perfect, like, yeah, because it is these two characters who have these parallel arcs who kind of cross over within each other. Like, Max is becoming uh, more and more just kind of, um, I guess, motivated. He's becoming, you know, driven, excuse the pun, as, you know, Tom Cruise is kind of losing control of the situation. He's very cool and collected in the end. They kind of, like, end up facing off, and they have these different differentiating goals and just I, I love the way they kind of start to respect each other more and just you, you see their hit change little by little over the course and then the midpoint they're almost at the same spot and they kind of split and go in the other directions and like you were saying one of the best portrayals of LA you've ever seen because a lot of stuff that shows LA is either something that's very glamorized um like a film that will show up on my list um a little, in a little bit is a very glamorized picture of LA or it's something that doesn't really feel like LA. It's like, okay, this is clearly Vancouver. Whereas this is like, yeah, this is what <laughs> LA really feels like. And people who aren't familiar with LA might be like, why was there a coyote in the middle of the movie? It's like, yeah, that's LA. That's And that wasn't something that was even planned. Apparently, like, they were just like, okay, this is, it was just perfect. Like, this silver-haired coyote shows up. And it's like, ah, it's Tom Cruise. This coyote just came into the shot perfectly. That's a scene that I totally forgot about. But yeah, that's a great scene. All right, my friend, uh, number five for you. So yeah, my number five, uh, as we said, so mine is a lot of romantic films. Um, and this one is 2001's In the Mood for Love. Um, so yeah, this, if for anybody who's not familiar, is a um, film from Hong Kong by uh, Wong Kar Wai. Uh, it kind of chronicles, this is almost like a mist encounter kind of film, um, because it is about these, basically the premise is, there's these two people who are living in adjacent rooms in this apartment in Hong Kong in, I want to say, the 50s. Um, sorry, the 60s. Um, and they they realize over the course of the film that their spouses are having an affair with each other. And they kind of end up talking a bunch and kind of like being like, oh, what do you think they said? And they, he's a writer and she kind of ends up helping him a bunch with all these kind of hard-boiled crime stories that he's writing. And slowly but surely, they kind of fall in love and, but they're like, we're not going to be like our spouses. We're not going to, you know, break the rules. We're going to be good people. And they kind of just miss the boat. And it just keeps happening again and again where he's about to leave. And then she's about to get uh, to go with him and realize she's going to leave. And he just misses her. And then he comes back. And it's just so heartbreaking because you want these people to be get together so badly. And they keep almost hitting it. And they just never do. And the film, it's its really beautiful. If you're not familiar with Wong Kar Wai, this is one of his best films, anybody who's listening. Um, one of my favorite, because Hong Kong is pretty well known for a lot of their kind of, you know, um, you know, John Woo-esque kind of just like big action films. Whereas this is not that at all. This is a very different kind of film from Hong Kong. And absolutely one of my favorite movies, In the Mood for Love. It's on HBO Max if you haven't seen it and anybody out there, check it out. There's also a really, really great Wong Kar Wai set from Criterion that has this included. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else can I add that you haven't said? I mean, <laughs> the colors are amazing. He's masterful with the camera. And um, it stars Tony Leung, who 
to me, like he's one of my favorite Hong Kong actors. He's you mentioned John Woo. He's in uh, Bullet to the Head by John Woo. He's also in uh, like the Infernal Affairs series. And now you're going to see him coming up in uh, in the Marvel Universe in the next Doctor Strange movie. Yeah. Or is it Shang-Chi that he's in? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's uh, Shang-Chi. Yeah. Great pick. Um, and one that I highly considered if I have if. I don't think I've seen it since like 2001, so I didn't remember enough to bring it onto my list. So your number five is a very beautiful movie. My number four is not beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) My number four is going to bring us into rough territory. And I think this is an interesting pick because in terms of like a list of brief encounters, the entire purpose of this movie or the entire entire plot of this movie revolves around several brief encounters it's from 1977 it's titled looking for mr goodbar come on bitch i know you're in there hey sonia bologna <laughs> big night tonight right say so you and me we drink out the old year and blow in the new okay huh get us tomorrow on a copa hey come on honey come on honey you got me all worked up oh too late <laughs> Come on, come on, hurry up. Hey! Look, you think this this lousy toilet chain's gonna keep me out, huh? Operator, get me the police. Yes, this is an emergency. That does it, cuño. Benito, you are dead! So this is directed by Richard Brooks, who I looked at his filmography because his name didn't ring a bell, but I had seen like The Professionals from 1966, and he also directed Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Um, but this is a really interesting story about a woman named Teresa. She's a successful teacher. She teaches uh, deaf children throughout the day, but she starts to spend her nights looking for companionship by cruising bars, and she's she finds herself getting into exceedingly violent situations with these brief encounters that uh, it seems like she's looking for. So at first, she's kind of craving sex, but later on, drugs also enter the mix, and this becomes dangerous not only for her nighttime activities, but how they affect her daytime commitment to the school and her kids. It stars Diane Keaton as the as uh, Teresa, She's fantastic. All the acting all around is great. Uh, Tuesday Weld plays Teresa's sister, Catherine, and she got a Best Supporting Actress nod for that. Now, there are three actors in this this, that this is their first role, and it's crazy that all three of these people turned out to be who they were. So first off, Richard Gere in his first role here. He is fantastic as like this uh, Italian psycho who starts to become way too close to Teresa We've got LeVar Burton in here in his first role, and he gets to kick the shit out of Richard Gere at one point, which is a really fun scene. And then finally, Tom Berenger in his first role, who, um, if I were to base things on only one brief encounter, Berenger's is the most impactful. It is terrifying in this very small role, but it has an enormous impact and leads to a shocking ending that will make this film linger with you. 
And it's one that Tom Berenger has said in interviews that it gave him nightmares long after he was done filming, like his experience filming this very small role in this movie. So if, I, if I'm trying to sell you on looking for Mr. Goodbar, that's my selling point. The ending is, it's going to stick with you. And I think the themes in this film will still resonate today as a tale of a woman trying to get out from underneath her father's thumb and like trying to move out of the house and be her own person. It's got themes about like getting out of your siblings shadows as the middle child in this family. And it's also got um, a, a powerful theme about just being your own woman and doing whatever you want to do, like getting out of those societal female norms. It's got an awesome soundtrack, awesome soundtrack. And it's probably the reason that it's never been on DVD or Blu-ray. It was only released on VHS and Laserdisc. I mean, you look up the soundtrack online and you get the Commodores, Diana Ross, Donna Summer, Bill Withers, the OJs. Like, it just goes on and on. And there's also, I have to mention, there's this amazing scene in which Diane Keaton is at one of these bars that she frequents. She's sitting at the bar. And of course, in front of her, she's reading the book, The Godfather by Mario Puzo, which she was in, in the movie, (laughs) The Godfather. And uh, some guy walks up. It might be, no, it's not Richard Gere. It's one of of her... um, earlier brief encounters but he walks up and he's like oh the godfather i've seen the movie al pacino he's great and it's just sort of like a (laughs) a made a nod back there in 1977 so Mm -hmm. uh not a traditional pick for a list like this i'm sure but in terms of brief encounters like this movie is all about brief encounters it's just a, a different type of brief encounter and that's looking for mr goodbar from 1977 i'll have to check that one out yeah it's tough and i I don't even know if it's on on like YouTube to watch or streaming and it's just never been put out. And it seems like one that would be rife for like the Criterion Collection or Kino to put out. Number four for you. Speaking of, because you were just talking about The Godfather, speaking of the Coppolas, um, this is a film directed by Sofia Coppola, his daughter, and that is Lost in Translation. You're a movie star. Yes, movie. I, I should be doing movies. Yeah. You know Lat Pak? Rat, rat pack, a ring a ding ding. Mr. Harris, Mr. Kazo sent me my stockings. Lip them. What? Hey, lip my stockings. Lip them. What? What are you doing? My husband's a photographer, so he's here working. He wasn't doing anything, so I came along. What do you do? I'm not sure yet, actually. So, Lost in Translation. It's one of those films where. Not even a ton happens. It's just kind of like about living with these characters for a little bit of time and just kind of going through their lives and just kind of they're in, you know, it's been called a lot of times kind of romantic melancholy because basically Bill Murray plays this kind of over the hill actor who's just doing commercials for Japanese whiskey and Scarlett Johansson is also in Tokyo with her newlywed husband and, you know, he's a photographer and their spouses neither of spouses are there her his spouse is back in america and her spouse kind of leaves very early on in the film and while it is you know a romantic film i think that it's that's not really the crux of it it is kind of more of a just like you know, some you're when you're on vacation you meet sometimes some people who just affect your life um and that they their kind of perspective makes you look at your own life and where you are like and they're really kind of realizing like they're both in ruts they're both in ruts in their relationships and while, you know, you're not really rooting for them to get together, like, for, for all time at the end of the movie, 
you are kind of rooting for them to be together in this moment and to kind of awaken each other to what it felt like to be in love again, because they're kind of both drifting. Um, I, I love just kind of the meandering quality of it. I'm not always a fan of that in movies, but I definitely am a fan of it here. Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson. That was very early Scarlett Johansson. They both give some of their career best performances. I feel like maybe Murray's best performance. He's still funny in it, but he's a lot more serious and you know, you feel for him a lot. The ending is a really solid ending. It, I like that it kind of had, they kind of, the first time they try to leave, there is, it's almost awkward. You're not really sure if it's going to be romantic or what, but it, it really hits me. I was going to actually recommend um, to, uh, to you to do the, your uh, ad read for the Centauri whiskey before I realized that's actually <laughs> a real thing. Um, Cause that's what he's advertising there. But yeah, lost in translation is my number four. I haven't seen this since it came out and when i watched it i did not connect with it at all so maybe it deserves a rewatch from me especially because i have since had a job where i traveled the country for a living for like six years and this definitely might hit with me differently now yeah i, I rewatched it recently because i watched it like in college um so it'd been you know a few years after it came out so i saw it, probably saw it in like 2007 2008 somewhere around there and I was like, this was solid, but like it didn't really hit me. Yeah, I've, I know that it connects with a lot of people. So um, yeah, maybe this yeah. this one deserves a rewatch for me. My number three, again, a different type of brief encounter. This one I've talked about on the show before because I love, love, love this movie. It's directed by Alfred Hitchcock from 1951, Strangers on a Train. I beg your pardon. Aren't you Guy Haynes? My name is Bruno. Bruno Anthony. Want to hear one of my ideas for a perfect murder? Two fellows meet accidentally. No connection between them at all. Never saw each other before. Each one has somebody that he'd like to get rid of. So, they swap murders. Crisscross. I may be old-fashioned, but I thought murder was against the law. You think my theory's okay, guy? I mean, you like it? Sure, sure. Now, everything didn't go smoothly. She doesn't want the divorce. But you sound so savage, guy. Sure, I sound savage. I feel savage. I like to break a neck. This is my favorite Hitchcock film. It's about this amateur tennis star named Guy Haynes, played by Farley Granger, and he wants to divorce his promiscuous wife so that he can marry the daughter of a U.S. senator. And one day he finds himself on a train, and this sociopath slash psychopath, Bruno Antony, played by Robert Walker, he recognizes him as as the tennis player. He walks up, starts a conversation on this train, and he plants the idea for a murder scheme. These two perfect strangers meet and then basically swap murders. So Bruno suggests that he'll kill Guy Haynes' wife, and in return, Guy Haynes has to kill Bruno's father. And Guy, he's, you know, on this this tennis player, he's just kind of like humoring him by pretending to find the idea amusing. Because like when people try to talk to you on a train, you're like, yeah, OK, all right. Yeah, that's great. Like, I'm looking to get off the train and never see you again. And of course, Bruno takes this as an agreement. So he goes and kills Guy's wife. <laughs> and then he expects that Guy's going to keep his end of the bargain. It's amazing uh the conversation itself is very intriguing and thought-provoking like if two strangers made this pact could they get away with it because there's literally no motive um it's tremendously shot it's amazingly suspenseful like 
there's a reason why Hitch- Hitchcock is known as the master of suspense. This right here, if I was to try and convince somebody about his masterful direction, this is a perfect example of that. It's going to raise your heartbeat f- almost instantly from frame one. It's going to last until the very last frame. Uh, there are shots like a murder being reflected in the lens of sunglasses, which still to this day, I just love that shot. There's a stunt under a carousel that Hitchcock has said is one of the most dangerous stunts they ever did. And uh, after that, he said he would never do a stunt like that again. But Strangers on a Train, amazing film. It was also nominated for Best Cinematography at the Oscars that year. So, so far, I've got uh, three Oscar-nominated films. Strangers on a Train, my number three. All right, well, uh, yeah, that's one. I've been working my way through some older Hitchcock stuff. I haven't hit that one yet, but I definitely need to watch it. It's interesting to see, you know, like which one of his films kind of get canonized and which ones, you know, don't because he is so eclectic and you can see a lot of his things pop up and up again. And you're like, okay, why is this one the one that's held up over this one? So I I really want to check this one out because it's not I don't think it's on any of the like I've been trying to watch the ones that are on like the AFI top 100 list first. And I don't think this one is on any of those. So I'll have to check it out. It should be. Yeah. All right. Uh, number three for you. All right. So, yeah, speaking of, you know, because you just mentioned you had three Oscar winners. This one was is kind of a notorious Oscar movie um, because it won Best Picture for about three seconds before it was taken back. And that <laughs> is uh, 2016's La La Land. I'm not going to that. What? That one's going to be. No, that one's going to be. I'm sorry. That will kill me. What? What? No! Shh! You have to be quiet. If you want me to, then you have to make sense. If you want me to be quiet, you have to make some goddamn sense. You tell me why you're not going. They're going to call because, because I've been to a million auditions, and the same thing happens every time where I get interrupted because someone wants to get a sandwich, or I'm crying and they start laughing, or there's people sitting in the waiting room and they're and they're like me but prettier Mm. and better at the because maybe I'm not good enough. Yes, you are. No. No, maybe I'm not. Yes, you are. Maybe I'm not. You are. Maybe I'm not. You are. Yeah, this is a film um, directed by one of my favorite directors, Damien Chazelle, um, starring probably the two most beautiful people in the world, as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) I'm probably in love with both of them, Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone. Um, But yeah, this is a movie where it's these two people who are both these kind of big dreamers in Los Angeles. She is trying to make it as an actress and he is Sebast- her name is Mia and his name is Sebastian Gosling. He's trying to, he loves jazz and he's, I can relate to him a lot because he's, Sam, I am passionate about movies and like I have a podcast, like I want everybody to listen to me talk about how much I love these movies. He's the same way about jazz and him wanting to open a jazz club and loving all these, like all this old jazz that people don't appreciate. Um, and the two of them kind of come together as these creatives and, you know, you see them build each other up and it's split into four parts. And of course, this is a musical for anybody who doesn't know. And it's got some really incredible music in it. Um, just just I love all the songs. I can put the soundtrack on just whenever. Um, but And then kind of over the course of the film, he starts to get successful. Um, and he, she starts saying, like, you're kind of... But he's not do, really... He's doing what he loves. He's kind of working with a jazz fusion band that he doesn't really want to be a part of. And they end up breaking up. Um, I'm you know, no spoilers here really for this because it's a brief encounter. So it's kind of in the premise of the show. Um, But yeah, so, and then they kind of realize they, he encourages her to follow her dreams and she does the same for him. 
then the movie, what really does it for me, what takes this from like a pretty solid, interesting movie with great actors and a great director, um, and is that last scene, that ending scene, is where it's just, it's like, it's she, after having not been with him for five years, they broke up, and then after they broke up, they kind of pushed each other to be better, and then had to go their different ways, because they had to go different parts in life, because she had to go to Paris to shoot a movie, and he did to stay and pursue his dreams, and they have, there's this last scene, I think it's maybe about like five, ten minutes long, where you kind of see what their lives would have been like if they had been together. And it is so beautiful. And it's just, the whole movie is kind of a love letter to these old Hollywood musicals that don't really get made anymore, these big Technicolor marvels. And the last scene just leans into that so hard because it is a fantasy. But then it cuts back to the reality of just the two of them not being together and you know, they, they really gave up their relationship and their love for their dreams. And that's kind of what the movie says is, you know, sometimes you, these people come into your life and while they're not going to be there forever, they will affect you and make you pursue your dreams. And sometimes you ha- might have to give your, that love up for your dreams and sad, but it's also beautiful. And, you know, I always cry <laughs> when I see that I can't, I can't hold it together. Like, I think that was one of my, like uh under the radar criteria for this list is i think every one of these movies on my list made me cry and the ending of la la land gets me every time i'm not going to expound upon la la land more than i have already on this show i love this movie i have all those those personal stories that i've talked about on air already i will just add that the music in it is amazing they're earworms they will get into your head and you will not be able to get them out of your head for several days afterwards and uh that scene that you're referring to at the end has one of my favorite of the songs which is kind of a mesh of all the songs that we had heard previously and it works in such amazing fashion yeah and really it does that thing where you know hearing musical motifs can just trigger such an emotional response and you've been fed these emotions that are tied to the music. And when they come back, it just washes over you. Yeah. The the themes of La La Land definitely, I, I thought of them when I was making this list. But for me, like the encounter wasn't brief enough. And I think I was just thinking with more a more like it needs to happen in a very short amount of time versus that one, which affected them over the course of a year and that's probably why the the only reason why it didn't make my list yeah it was it was kind of a judgment call on my part but i was like i've got it i've got to put it on here hey any more any more chances we get to talk about la la land on force five i'm all about it (laughs) excellent (laughs) wow we've talked about some really great movies so far really well received a lot of oscar nominations and my number two is one that has zero Oscar nominations and it deserves zero Oscar nominations <laughs> because listeners, you know, my taste, I like a lot of weird stuff too. And this is like, this is definitely quality wise, the worst film on my list by far, but it's a lot of fun for a lot of different reasons. And I'll get into it. Uh, this is from 1985. It's a movie called flesh and bullets. There's a fire Perfect solution. Let me hear it. I'll kill your wife, and you kill mine. But if you fail, I'll kill you. And if you fail, I'll kill you. Think of this as like a loose remake of Strangers on a Train in the sleaziest way 
possible. And I say this only because the like the similarity is the initial encounter ideating around a murder swap. So same idea. That one happened on a train. This one happens in a really crappy bar in Las Vegas. I'm, I'm sure you've never heard of Flesh and Bullets, and I'm sure most people haven't heard of Flesh and Bullets. And, you know, it's not one that I'm going to tell you to go out and, and watch for, like, a serious movie. But if you've got a lot of friends over and you're you're buzzed, you're drinking some beers, and you want to watch something akin to The Room or, like, uh, Samurai Cop, this is a good pick. Uh, it's directed by a director named Carlos Tobolina, and it's the only non-porn movie directed by this guy. He directed a <laughs> ton of porn throughout the 70s and 80s under the name Troy Benny. And honestly, it feels like a porn movie that's just had the porn edited out. That's like how it looks and how it feels. The story follows these two guys named Roy and Jeff. They are b- two divorcees. They're paying like alimony, child support. They're played by these actors named Glenn McKay and Mick Morrow. Not Vic Morrow, the the infamous Vic Morrow, but Mick Morrow, which to me makes me think because they've never been in anything else. I kind of think that they're using pseudonyms like porn actors in the 70s and 80s did. <laughs> so anyway, uh, these guys are like they're sharing their stories, right, about their struggles to pay alimony and, and, and whatnot. And. Ultimately, they decide to devise this perfect plot to exchange murders, just like in Strangers on a Train. But uh, in this movie, they the best laid plans fall through because they each fall in love with their respective targets. That's the setup for this. It's plagued by awful camera work. It's like all static cameras except for the occasional zoom in or zoom out. If you watch it now, it's got crazy levels of homophobia, which is definitely going to turn some people off. There's also this very weird elevator music tune that plays in the background of like 50% of the film. But it's so bizarre that it's fun. There's two things really that make this thing stand out. The first is the dialogue. The dialogue is absurd. And it's the driving force of the entertainment value here. Everybody in this movie is reading lines like it's their first time reading the script and they're trying to figure out what's on the page. (laughs) It's bizarre the way these people read these lines. He used to call me a frigid bitch. (sighs) Dina is crying. All you're ever interested in is the baby. You frigid bitch. The second thing that is really fun about this is that it's got, for some reason, a lot of old stars who were like big stars in the 40s, 50s, 60s that were on their way out. And they make confusing appearances here in bit parts. Uh, Cesar Romero, who played Joker in the Adam West Batman. He's in here. Quentin Tarantino favorite Aldo Ray is in here. Uh, Yvonne DiCarlo, who was like, a legitimate Hollywood star in the 40s and 50s. She's in here. And then Cornell Wilde sporting the most obvious hairpiece in movie history and <laughs> whose name is literally spelled wrong in the end credits. Like it's spelled <laughs> right in the first, in the, in the initial role <laughs> and wrong in the end. Like it's batshit crazy. And again, it's a bad, like objectively, it's a bad movie. But if you're looking for something really entertaining around a brief encounter, Ah, uh, flesh and bullets. Pretty good choice. Pretty good choice. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
interesting interesting all right um so yeah my number two is uh and i went really back and forth between my number two and number one and which ones it was going to be number one um but ultimately i came down on putting my number two as portrait of a lady on fire from 2019 this is a film and i know i'm gonna butcher her name here uh celine schiama i think is her name she's a french director um it's a french film um and it is set in just kind of this uh, small island off of Brittany. and essentially the plot is that a uh painter has to come to this island to paint a portrait of the uh another girl who lives on the island the daughter of kind of the baroness or whatever and uh so that she can send the portrait off to her future husband and the person who has to be painted, um, Heloise, really does not want to be painted. She doesn't want to just be basically sold off like this. And the painter, Marianne, um, kind of like is watching her. And the film does a lot of really interesting things where it is subverts the ma- male gaze because it is a... I, I, gotta, I felt like I definitely had to include at least one uh, love story that was a queer love story because there are so many great love stories like this because it is, you know, just kind of a thing where it's like, yeah, like it's taboo or whatever in like whatever time it was, you know, so you get stuff like Weekend or um, uh, Call Me By Your Name. But this one just is one of the absolutely most beautiful films I've ever seen. Um, you know, I don't want to talk on that too much because I am, you know, a straight white dude. And there are definitely people who could talk about those aspects and just kind of like female autonomy and just all that stuff and how there's it's subverting the male gaze and everything a lot better than I can. But what really spoke to me about this film was the fact that Marianne being a painter, being an artist and me being a writer, like you, the way you kind of like see people and, or not see people, but just kind of like see the world and just like, like, you know, uh, Heloise will say something like, Oh, what you paints are, you painted me so much. You're just going to, when you look at me, you're still this drawing. And the way that aspect just kind of takes on just a life of its own, just, you know, and that's the way, you know, it's the whole image versus reality thing. And they kind of blend and, there's all these scenes where she sees her in a wedding dress. It, it really did a lot for me. Um, there's basically, I feel like, two kinds of brief encounter movies where there's the ones where it's like, this is a brief encounter, but you know, we or the characters don't know it's a brief encounter. But then there's the ones like this where they're, they know that this is a brief encounter. They know they only have a certain amount of time together. And you're just like, oh, can you just kiss already? We, we don't <laughs> have that long. Like, go, 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 please. And there is a time limit. And that ticking clock adds so much to the movie. Um, the ending is beautiful. Once again, just like has me in tears. But yeah, from just the kind of artistic aspect and the way that, you know, your love can influence your art and your art can influence your love. This movie did a lot for me. This one came up on uh, our list of top five movies directed by females, which if you want a female perspective on it, Rosa from the Latinx Lens had this on her list. So go back and check that out. And I'll just uh, echo your thoughts and say one more thing that I think I said in that episode too, is that there are a lot of scenes that are completely told through body language and emotional expressions, which I think is just fantastic. So I was going back and forth between two movies directed by David Lean and I'm hoping that you're going to pick the other one so we can talk about it. He is, of course, the director of Lawrence of Arabia, Dr. Zhivago, Bridge on the River Kwai, and my number one from 1955, a film called Summertime. Oh, he does things to me. Yes, this is Venice. Captivating, enchanting Venice. 
the world's most beautiful city, an inviting place for lovers. Here is one man who should know, for this is his home. And here, at a cafe in the Piazza San Marco, is where it all began. That one completely unforgettable summertime we have all known. This was theirs, Jane's and his. And it started as casually as this. This is a film starring uh, Catherine Hudson. She plays Jane Hudson, a, a single 40-year-old secretary who lives in Ohio. And for a very long time, she's been saving up for a trip to Venice. And she just kind of sees her life as boring. She's very lonely. So she decides, I'm just going to I'm going to live out my dream. I'm going to go to Italy, see this really great place. And on her first night, she goes down to the cafe like she meets a couple people in the hotel and she's just kind of walking around the town and at night she finds herself in this cafe and she's looking around she's seeing all these couples that are in love and happy and she starts feeling very lonely but she also notices this Italian man in the distance staring at her and being in a foreign country she's uncomfortable it, it kind of spooks her so she like runs back to the hotel and that's the end of her first night but the next day, she's wandering around. She's walking around, enjoying the city. She wanders into this antique store where she's really smitten with this uh, old glass goblet. And the owner walks out, and the owner is Renato de Rossi, the man who was staring at her the other night. And what transpires is not only him trying to sell her this goblet, but uh, you know, once she has the goblet, he goes looking for a matching one. Uh, so he's kind of smitten with her. She's taken with him. And we've got this week of new love along with the trust issues that can arise with new relationships. Like um, she sees somebody selling knockoff versions of this goblet and she's wondering, like, did he con me? Am I drinking out of an original or did I buy a knockoff? And he has some things going on where he might not be single or he might be. There might be, um, you know, some philandering on his part. And, and, and that's something that she has to figure out. This was filmed in 1954. Venice looks just utterly amazing. David Lean shooting here in Technicolor. Those colors do pop. You can see what this brilliant city looked like 60 plus years ago. And it kind of reminds me of, um, and this will probably be on some of our honorable mentions list, but the Before series, um, where these people are just kind of wandering around a town, talking to one another, enjoying the company, knowing that at some point they're going to have to part. It's got that typical romantic brief encounter heartbreak ending that it's not going to be a surprise, but at the same time, it's it it makes you think like what could have been if they were at different times or different parts of their life. Summertime from 1955, um, it got Catherine Hudson a, I, I think she, she was definitely nominated for Best Actress. She might have won Best Actress. And David Lean was nominated for Best Director for this Summertime, also known as Summer Madness from 1955. That is my grand finale. That's, that's a great pick. Um, and it's interesting, you know, uh, because with David Lean, you people tend to think of him as this director of these big epics, you know, these, you know, three hour long Lawrence of Arabia movies that are just like in 
like you know just about these wide expanses and just you know people walking down the screen and it just they go on forever or like bridge on the river Kwai. um but you know like you said uh my number one pick uh, is also a david lead movie so uh it is uh the other one that you were probably considering which is the namesake of this episode which is brief encounter i'm a happily married woman or rather i was until a few weeks ago this is my whole world, and it's enough. Or rather, it was until a few weeks ago. Can I help you? Uh, oh, no, please, it's only something in my eye. Try pulling your eyelid down as far as it'll go. And then blowing your nose. Please let me look. I happen to be a doctor. That's very kind of you. Oh, turn around the light, please. That's how it all began. And like you were saying, it's just, it's, this movie is only, it's 86 minutes long. Um, so it's a really tight story. It's just really about these two people. There's some stuff going on in the background and stuff, but it's all really just about these two who very accidentally and unintentionally fall in love. They're just kind of these strangers who meet up every once in a while at the train station, and they just kind of form this bond and just, you know, just kind of by circumstance, just by the fact that just out of just nowhere, a piece of grit hits her eye and he takes it out and they just kind of slowly just build up this and then you know they're both happily married you know and she keeps saying that she's like i'm happily married or at least i was a week ago neither of them she has no problems with her husband you know he's very much that same kind of baxter that we were talking about before mm -hmm. you know as far as we know he's very happy with his wife but sometimes you know there's you know it's kind of highlights that like you're with somebody and it makes sense and you're happy you know but then there's this like innate just like you know attraction that you will have with some people out there that's a very rare thing and this movie just kind of highlights just like sometimes you'll just meet somebody and it'll be like wow this this makes so much sense but they happen to meet each other when they're at least part of their lives where they really can't be together and to add to that like not only are they you know kept from being together because of their their you know different partners and their children but he's also got a ticking clock where he has to go to africa so it adds that ticking clock back in and it's all told from her perspective you know there's kind of this running monologue going through her head because she's imagining how she would tell this to her husband because um, she's like this he's the only person who i trust enough to be able to tell this to but i could never tell him like even when we're old because it would just destroy him and he would always just be you know just he, he would always wonder about me and it just it's so heartbreaking and the, the things she'll think there's so feel so real where she'll just her friend is just after her friend just comes in, they, she steals that moment. You want them to have this last cathartic moment. And then it's just gone. He just leaves. And Oh my God, it's so heartbreaking. And she like sits, stands there and she's like contemplates suicide. It's just because she hasn't know what else to do. Cause there's so much pain and she doesn't do it. And just, it just, you know, she'll think something like, I wish my friend was dead. No, I don't. That's a bad thing to think. And she'll, and then she'll go be like, and I just, I, I wish that I could forget about this. No, I never want to forget. I want to remember forever. And I've definitely been there, you know, like after you go through a rough breakup and you're like, do I want to forget this person? Do I just want to remember forever? And it ties back to another tagline from, you know, a film I just talked about, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which is the tagline for that movie was don't regret, remember. And I think that kind of is the crux of this movie and what all of these movies kind of are, you know, this laid the blueprints for these kind of like romantic brief encounter movies of just being like, uh, just, you know, not want, you're not, you don't want to forget. You want to hold on to that feeling. Even if it's painful, you know that the love you felt in that moment was so real. And it is just by and large, one of the greatest films of all time. One of my, maybe at least top 20 films, if not top 10, 
just of all movies, just in general. I, I love this movie and I'd only come came to it recently. It was maybe a, it was during the lockdown. I finally got around to watching it. But since then, I bought the Criterion um, DVD. Just it, it really gets me. <laughs> when you think about brief encounter movies, a lot of them have like uh, an affair involved, mm-hmm. like like uh, Summertime, which I mentioned, they make love and you see the fireworks in the background and that's like symbolic of that. So, you know, they already have that connection. And in this one, it's more like uh, like those those moments are taken away from them for different yeah. reasons, one reason or another. And um, it's funny that I, I recently watched Brief Encounter for the first time. And then I also watched the first season of The Handmaid's Tale and I don't know if you're familiar with that, but uh, I, I I haven't watched it, but I, I know enough about it. I feel like <laughs> there's a relationship that you start seeing like from the past that starts off very, very similarly to Brief Encounter in that there's a chance encounter and these people meet and then they meet again at a chance encounter. And eventually it turns into like innocent lunches. And then they realize, hey, people might see us here and get the wrong idea. So maybe we should go somewhere more private, like that kind of thing. And um, it just drew some interesting parallels that it's, uh, I guess its influence still lives on from 1945 until now, whether it be in movies or TV shows. Yeah, yeah. And like I was saying, it's, I think it's just so impressive that it's so sparse and it was shot during World War II. It's pretty much in one location, really two, only two actors with, you know, very like in any extensive speaking roles um and it's done by david lean who's known for the exact opposite just like big technicolor movies with a thousand cast members but it's so small and so intimate that it really just works good pick and i'm glad that you brought that up um and i want to make one correction too like in in my last review uh the character's name is jane hudson and i was saying Catherine hudson it's Catherine hepburn so um i'm stupid for not saying that i do that (laughs) (laughs) i just wanted to make sure that i didn't get a bunch of emails telling me that uh, i'm dumb and that that's not Catherine hudson i will never live down when i said that f mary abraham was in the mummy i still don't know why i said it but (laughs) i said that on my podcast and i still feel regret it well uh did you have any honorable mentions films that uh, you really wish would have made your list but you just didn't have the room for I have a lot, actually, because there's so many of these movies that I really, really enjoy. Um, so <laughs> I've got quite a list um, that have movies that I uh, think. Uh, Captain America, the first Avenger. Um, Arrival. Ooh, good one. Thank you. Casablanca, obviously. Once, um, we mentioned the before series, so Before Sunrise. Uh, Titanic, obviously. Uh, one, The only one that I have that is a non-romantic one would be The Lighthouse, Uh that's an interesting one, I think. Uh, yeah. Batman Returns, Moulin Rouge, and Shane. Wow, those are some that uh, that never crossed my mind and are really, really interesting picks. Thank you, thank you. The only one that I had that you mentioned was Casablanca on my honorable mentions. I also had Save the Tiger, a really interesting film from 1973, which kind of has two brief encounters with the same girl starring Jack Lemmon. Uh, my, my wife wanted me to mention Serendipity. <laughs> Starring uh, John Cusack, which I haven't seen in a very long time, but she said it would definitely fit in. Uh, Against the traditional sense, Place Beyond the Pines has a very brief encounter between Ryan Gosling's character and Bradley Cooper's character. That's a good one. I didn't think of that. Yep. And then um, Death Sentence with uh, Kevin Bacon, his his brief encounter with a gang member. And then finally, uh, Run from 1991, Patrick Dempsey's brief encounter with a mob boss's son is uh, the impetus for how that unfolds. 
Okay, very cool. Uh, before I let you go here, tell us a little bit more about Underrated. Um, obviously, it's not you, just you. You've got some some co-hosts on there. Uh, maybe tell us, like, number one, how you choose the movies, and then number two, like, if there was one episode you wanted people to start with, uh, where would they want to start? Okay, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, like you had mentioned, it's me and a couple co-hosts, um, my friends Alan and Ariel. Um, we each take turns doing movies. Uh, so, you know, Alan's have his pick, Ariel will have her pick, and I'll have mine. I try to be kind of eclectic in my picks. Sometimes I'll be like, you know, this is something that I'll just, I have like a kind of just big master list of things I want to cover at some point and I'll just pick stuff off. Um, Sometimes I'll pick something that I'm like, okay, I've heard things like I wanted, we hadn't talked about a a Western ever. So I was like, let me talk about Hostiles because I've heard that's a really underrated one. So I watched and I was like, that's definitely going to be one we'll talk about. So we covered that recently. Um, But yeah, I think one, an episode to start with would maybe be our episode on 13 ghosts, which is also the episode where I said F Murray Abraham was in the mummy. <laughs> um, but that's a really, we had a lot of fun with that one. Um, that was one of Ariel's picks. It's just kind of a really fun, like just, yeah, I think you would enjoy it just kind of based on oh, you know, I do. the love of oh, I do. Okay. Yeah. You, of course you know it. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I think you'd really like that. Uh, you know, that episode, I think anybody listening would, we were having a lot of fun of uh, just kind of like goofing around and talking about that movie and, comparing it to fences it's the whole thing but uh yeah i think that's a good one to start with um you know any of the recent episodes because the audio is a little bit shaky in some of the older episodes if you really want to go back and listen to like speed racer or something that's fun but um yeah we're doing a lot of stuff on sequels for the summer um so we just did star trek beyond if you want to anybody wants to go listen to that episode that was a really fun one too cool summer of sequels so yes go check that out at the underrated podcast anything else you want to plug or maybe where people can find you on social media if they want to get more of your your stuff yeah so um you know if you want to follow the podcast it's undercast company um you can follow me um for at derek's photos on instagram so it's d-e-r-i-c-k-s uh underscore photos um you can follow me on medium some of my writing there or um just check me out on youtube if Anybody, you know, like you mentioned at the top, I write freelance for some places like Watch Mojo, most notably. So you might have already seen some of my lists on Watch Mojo, but I've got a collection of those. If you want to look me up on YouTube, just Derek McDuff. Cool. Thanks so much for coming on. Uh, this was awesome and a very thought-provoking list. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I had a blast, and I there's so many movies you mentioned that I would never have even thought of. That's the end of today's show, but stick around until after the credits for one spoiler thought I had on Black Widow. If you want to have some brief encounters with me, follow the show on Instagram and Twitter. I try to reply to every comment on every post, so let's have some fun on social media. That's Force5Podcast on Instagram and Force5Pod on Twitter. Also, head to Force5Podcast.com for the show request form and other Force5-related stuff. Before you do that, take a minute, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. Intro and outro bumpers today come courtesy of Nate Spears. The top five list bumper was produced by me with music from Audio Binger. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and go watch some movies about brief encounters. Spoilers for Black Widow starting now. So if you haven't seen Black Widow and want to, this is your warning. Stop the podcast now. Would it have been that bad to have Black Widow shoot Drakov in the face? The film presents this man as an allegory for a pedophile, one who grooms forgotten girls from a young age and uses them to his own advantage. In his own sick words, he uses the only natural resource Earth has too much of, girls. This man, played by Ray Winstone, deserved a brutal 
one-on-one -on -one death at the hands of Natasha Romanov. Instead, he gets unceremoniously blown up with a bunch of other cronies like we've seen so many times before. Give Black Widow that moment. Give Natasha that moment. Have him get out of the helicopter before it takes off. Natasha sees him, stalks him, watches him beg for his life, but the pheromones don't work anymore. She plugs him in the head from a wide shot because this is Marvel after all and 10-year-olds shouldn't see brains splattering from the back of someone's head, and kicks his slumping body off the falling wreckage, mixing it indiscriminately with the rest of the trash. I get it. Disney doesn't want its heroes shooting people in the face, but someone like Drakov deserves to get shot in the fucking face, and Natasha and the audience wouldn't feel the least bit bad about that. Nor should we. Stop treating these villains with the respect they don't deserve and allow them to get shot in the fucking face.